Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to the all new, all different Uncanny X's for Podcasts, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic franchise during the 1980s mutant mania through titles like Dazzler and the New Defenders. I'm your host, Dylan. I'm Nico. And I'm Jonah. We hope you survived the experience. Because this is a, yeah, I mean, okay. It's one of those situations where like, I remember, I remember growing up and people being like, you got to watch this or you got to see that or you got to read this. It's going to change your life. And I read it. I remember everybody telling me that I was such an angsty teen and I was going to read Catcher in the Rye and it was going to change me. And I read Catcher in the Rye and I was like, that was the biggest waste of my motherfucking time I've ever read. This is so pedestrian, right? I eat kids that write this like poetry, like I spit it out, you know, and obviously as an adult, I'm aware that it's a really well-written piece of work as a kid. I just didn't resonate with it. So it was one of those things where people were like, this is the greatest book. How you don't appreciate it is beyond, I don't understand what the Fuck, why do people care about the classic Defenders? I don't get it. Today we're here to discuss Defenders 122 to 124 and New Defenders 125 to 130, all of which was by J.M. Dematius, who we've actually read a bunch of stuff by and we're always pretty big fans of. Uh, I, oh my god. Yeah, I mean, Dylan, in the annals of comic bookery, this is one of the ones that people are pretty positive on. Like, some big names are really positive on this, too. This is actually my first read-through of Defenders, because... Like you just said, Defenders has always had some big characters on it and big, very popular characters. And being the person that I am and liking C-list characters more, I never felt the need to want to read Defenders. But like you just said, lots of comic book fans, lots of comic book legendary artists and writers always talk about the Defenders. I kind of don't know why, but yeah, so there's that. It is also my first read-through of Defenders. I had no idea this was actually even a thing. This is also my first read-through of a lot of characters. This is my first introduction to Valkyrie, to more of Moondragon, though we saw her a little bit. This is my first real stint with Iceman, and my first Silver Surfer, Hulk, who I haven't seen a whole Hulk is, Doctor Strange, Namor slash the Submariner in this and Damien Hellstrom. Submariner. <laughs> I like Mariner though. <laughs> I feel like that might Submariner. Yeah. I do um... kind of love Submarina and the Diamonds. <gasps> I have a thousand percent of my time for that joke. It's like Susie Shoe and Banshee. But yeah, so this is, besides a title, I am being exposed to a plethora of characters that I've never had the chance to read before. So I was really ready to read that. I will say this, I liked the premise of the Defenders. The idea of a pick-up-as-you-go team where it doesn't have a set roster, it's more whoever just happens to be there at the time to help save the day. I can kind of get into that. I was not into these issues. (laughs) 
it was real tough. It was real tough. And we'd read a little bit of the Defenders earlier on when trying to put together a way to follow the Beast. I wanted to just touch on the stuff we needed to do to make sense of it. Now, if you're somebody who knows the Defenders from perhaps the Netflix series, you might be confused by what's going on here. The Defenders featuring Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Misty Knight, Luke Cage, Colleen Wing, and Danny Rand, I guess. That incredible Netflix attempt at weaving together a number of shows really would have been better off being called perhaps the Marvel Knights, which had been a moniker that that group of characters had run under at one point, because this is truer to what The Defenders was. To help clarify what's going on here, The Defenders was originally introduced in Marvel Feature Number 1 in 1971, and then the original team, Doctor Strange, Hulk, Namor, and later on Silver Surfer, would be joined by Valkyrie, Hellcat, Damien Hellstrom, who, you know, I'm just so in love with, Beast, Gargoyle, a number of characters who really just, like, legendary, super mega powerful characters, and I have a hard time figuring out why Marvel chose to reappropriate that name for the Defenders TV program. I guess the name just hit really well, and it had enough weight to it, but this really is the main idea of the series, and the title ran as The Defenders from number 1 to number 124. There were also a number of giant-sized Defenders and annuals along the way. It was an enormous roster of teams that, gosh, I can't even count the number of people that came and went. So, in 1983, the team needed maybe a little bit more focus. Like Jonah said, it's really cool to think about a non-team that's kind of a team, but it's so hard to have a comic that lacks an identity. That's one of the hardest things about those sorts of books, where they just kind of call whoever together. Marvel team-up also around this time saw its conclusion. Everything was moving toward a more streamlined format, and while, don't get me wrong, I think that The Defenders probably ended because it was not the best-selling title at Marvel. It ended in a lot of ways to re-contribute these characters to the X-Men franchise, these characters being Angel, Beast and Iceman. So we're reading a really pivotal moment where the original Defenders returned to the sort of interim Defenders and helped them turn over the reins to, I guess, the final set of... Defenders, I guess? Dylan, you were on the Unlovable Beast episode with us, right? Where he had his craziness with Vera and then she got kidnapped. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. We had that huge arc where the whole fucking point was Beast would do anything for Vera. He loves Vera. He thinks the world of Vera. This woman means everything to him. He'll give his right hairy beast blue nut for her. And here, he, I mean, the guy was kind of like, no, I'm sorry. Everyone has to die in the Holocaust. And now he's like, no, that is not remotely the plot. But what an unceremonious goodbye to a character that we've actually been following for quite a while. Anybody who's been following X's for podcast since day one knows that we initially covered the Beast on November 20th, 2018, in our sixth episode, myself and Kyle, along with Jonah, where we covered Amazing Adventures 11 through 17, which chronicled Beast's transformation. And we saw Vera there, and, and then Vera showed up again in our 80s Mutant Mania episode, The Unlikable Beast in the Avengers and Defenders, in November of this past year. So it's kind of crazy that all of Vera's contributions 
connections to Beast's timeline seem to dry up here. Dylan, had you even known who Vera was before this? I think there was maybe an issue in like the 90s of an X-Men comic where they mentioned Vera, but I did not know who Vera was until I started being on these issues with you. So I have to assume you know Trish Tilby. I do know Trish. Who doesn't know Trish? Now, Jonah, you know Trish, too, because you read New X-Men with me. Correct, and I don't want to spoil what he says to her in it, but it's not the it's not the best. <laughs> it's not attractive, no. Quite a way for Trish Tilby to go out. The most important thing to start off this discussion with is the unceremonious end of a number of these characters in this series. It feels really like they are trying to be rushed out the door. We've talked about how I'm a pretty big Damien Hellstrom fan once again. If you're looking for a pretty good run on the character, please check out the Warren Ellis run. If you're just looking for some fun with the character, take a look at Kieran Gillen's Journey into Mystery with Loki. And Jason Aaron always writes a kick-ass Damien Hellstrom, so keep an eye out for any time he's in a book by that gentleman who, you know, by the way, just putting it out there, if you're ever in a store and you have the opportunity to, please buy anything Jason Aaron Wolverine. It is a great iteration of the character. I love him so much, and I love Wolverine and the X-Men as a title. Okay, back to this. I think you can see the ways that they are... Oh, speaking of Defenders, how funny is that? Hellcat, it really does feel like they are pushing Hellcat, Hellstrom, just like out the door at record, and whoever the hell this Overmind guy is. Yeah. That was something about these issues I noticed. They were very heavily rushed, which is weird to say. Everything felt way too fast-paced for it to be, like, fully believable, you know? I agree <laughs> with all the discussion of the rushing, because for me to read these issues for this episode, I don't like to just jump in the middle of things, so I was kind of going back and at least skimming through the first couple hundred of Defenders, especially, so I could kind of get the sense of where everything was with it, and it seemed like the main Defenders, like Hellcat and Damien and Doctor Strange and Silver Surfer and Namor Hulk, just seemed like they were super, super given a really crappy story to be kicked out for these next generation to come in. It just seemed very convoluted. I assume that you did that power learn on Marvel Unlimited, right? You know, that's one of the only things that I really think I might prefer about reading this stuff on Marvel Unlimited. When I can have my omnibus open in front of me, I probably prefer the omnibus edition, but having the opportunity when I see a reference to an issue to just, oh, okay, they're saying if I don't understand this, I should go to that and I can just flip there. One of the things that was the craziest in these issues was evidently this was a summary in some ways of all 124 issues and they said that events in this explained continuity stretching back to issues in the single digits through issues in the 40s and I was just baffled by the amount of time people were expected to wait for a payoff number one number two I think it's really terrific when writers work together like that to help each other's stories come due even if that hadn't been what the guys that wrote those early issues had intended, it's really great to see their original idea utilized in some way. But moreover, I like being able to go back and see, oh, okay, there actually were elves on those pages. Speaking of, of el elves, can we talk about this villain's name, Elf with a Gun? <laughs> actually, I don't want to talk about it. That's that's it. That's all I want to say. A villain's name is Elf with a Gun. Okay. <laughs> I mean, listen, that's actually, I mean, I when you put it that way, it's actually pretty amazing. <laughs> Listen, is it a terrible name? Yes. But is that name not hysterical? <laughs> yes. 
It was something else. And, you know, like, I think one of the things that worked in this story's favor, because essentially, the story is as Damien and Patsy are finally able to be together because Damien has sacrificed his demon soul. I love that he keeps being like, I'm no longer the son of Satan. I've renounced my soul. And I'm like, (laughs) what? So Damien gives up his soul so he can become a monk, but then doesn't become a monk and instead decides to marry Patsy so they can quit the Defenders, which isn't really a team anyway. So then Moondragon shows up and she's actually there as a part of Valkyrie's vision quest as provided by Odin, who believes that Moondragon is just really fucked up. She's not evil. And so her villainous ways are actually born of a desire to do good. So she's kind of there too. And Beast is having a reunion with Iceman and there's a lot of like homoeroticism at Iceman. And Iceman seems like chill about it and not at all freaked out about it, which that's oddly out of character for Iceman. I feel like when people are being good-natured and laughing with him, that's when he turns into a giant shithead. So, it was weird to see Iceman have fun. And so in the middle of all of this, the original Defenders are called together and are told if they ever become a team again, it will end the world. Full stop. So, Beast is like, okay, uh, let's be a new big team. And they become a big new team. It's not a really complicated plot. I'm pretty sure I just summarized the first four issues. It's not a tough one, but it definitely took a lot of weird sidesteps to get there. I know in a lot of these episodes, especially in the Dazzler episodes, we've talked about how writers aren't very consistent. His main goal and only thing that he wanted to do in life was to keep his love for Vera. But then in these issues, he automatically is like, I don't need Vera. I just need a team like the Avengers or X-Men or Defenders. And even though I know it's not a, a drastic change, like with the Dazzlers, I kind of feel like it's a little inconsistent with the beast that we were reading up to this point. No question there. I really feel like they're not exactly sure what they're trying to do with him. Something really funny about you pointing that out. Everything that I've read of the Beast has had Beast been a shithead to his love interest, so it kind of was fitting for more modern day Beast. I absolutely agree with you. I think it's a really weird piece of inconsistency. He seems upset over it, but he like fully forgot a date. It does happen. I am so like confused at Beast literally saying the last time we saw him, he would do anything to save her to now not really caring is wild to say the least it is a dramatic disregard for other human beings that i don't feel is in beast's nature in the least One of the things that strikes me the minute it becomes the new Defenders is it's immediately an X-Men book. There's no fucking around. It is instantly an X-Men book, down to yet another one of those weird stories we can't get away from. We read two different Marvel team-ups that featured, what's his name? Power Pansy? What's his name? Professor Power. (laughs) Professor Power. We read two different stories with Professor Power in Marvel Team-Up and both of them were worse than the last. Now all of a sudden, as soon as this features Angel and Iceman and Beast, the story becomes about how someone's out to get revenge on Xavier and you can't help but think this is what they wrote out the original characters for? I agree with this Defender sounding just like the X-Men because 
like you said, with Professor Power wanting to go after Xavier, with Angel, Iceman, and Beast on the team, and I feel like Moondragon with her kind of toned down abilities is just like a different version of Jean and or maybe Xavier. She's a bald woman, so it's like an amalgam of both of them. And she's like got that like creepy, sinister, mean goblinness that totally is Xavier, the way, you know, he's just always lurking in every corner, lasciviously <laughs> talking about how new bio exactly. is. <laughs> I can see Valkyrie as the stand-in for Storm. Valkyrie is an actual goddess. Storm was revered as a goddess. This, you know, really powerful woman who is easily able to take a leadership role, even when the others don't seem to think they can, which was bizarre and very misogynistic, to say the least. Oh, wait, you know what? Come to think of it, wow, if we think of Valkyrie as Storm, great read there, then I think Moondragon is actually Wolverine, because she's the wild card that can't be controlled. In that regard, I think, weird as it's going to sound, I think that makes Beast the sort of dutiful Scott character. The one who's trying to hold the team together with the strength of his heart. Angel, by the way, Jonah, did you catch that this is the lead up to the Marvel fanfare stories we read like forever ago? It is unbelievable to me the number of stories that this interacts with. You know, there was the reference to Callisto, the Morlocks, and... And Angel's stint with being the sub-tied-up piece for Callisto to marry and play with, and he talked about how it changed him, and I was like, this is, this feels like it's pointed. I have to wonder how that happened. Like, did Claremont say, I want to do this thing to Angel first as a lead-in to Champions? Did they say this thing is happening to him? So this is a great usage. Dylan, does this even feel like the same characters that are going to be in X-Factor? It kind of doesn't. I feel like when they had Iceman and Beast and Angel leave the X-Men, I feel like Marvel was allowing certain writers or other writers to try to do with whatever they wanted with those three. But then once those three are back on X-Factor, I feel like certain character development that may have happened in the Avengers and the Defenders may have been lost, and it may not have been a bad thing to lose it. And I know what you mean, because these don't really feel like the characters. They feel like hollow iterations. But one of the things, speaking of hollow iterations, I too had never read a lot of this Defender stuff. I fucking loved these covers, number one. And number two, that cover on 129 with the New Mutants versus the Defenders, I was like, how have I never heard of this story? So when we got to that moment where one of the the New Defenders' first stories was they had to go up against the New Mutants only for it to be revealed to be like a psychic thing but like i mean it was still worth it just to get my hands on some more new mutes you know what i mean like it was really cool i am right there with you i didn't know that this new mutants thing even happened and at the end of issue 128 which also by the way had a really amazing cover i was like wait what new mutants are in the defenders now i'm actually gonna pay attention I do agree. My favorite thing about this with the covers, what I did notice about all of these characters and what they wanted, now we did just talk about them being stand-ins for the X-Men, but I realized that they were filling certain roles. It very much seemed Beast was the protagonist of these stories. A lot of this was all about Beast, which is not the worst in the world. Bobby comes off as the narrator. He kind of just pointed out a lot of things for either the reader or the other characters in the book. But I think for me, the two breakaway characters 
characters were Valkyrie in her Madonna metal titty <laughs> outfit and Moondragon. I agree. You know, look around everywhere you turn in, darling. Pointy titties. I loved that Valkyrie was like, I think I'm in love with Hellcat, but I can't call it gay love. Oh my, absolutely. That was so fully coded gay. She definitely wanted to marry her. Also, wait, speaking of Hellcat, can we talk about how her ex-husband, Mad Dog, was just Batman? <laughs> oh, just straight up Red Batman. That was straight up Straight Red up Red Batman. Batman. That was almost shameful. Straight up Red Batman! That was just some Red Batman nonsense. I hated that. It was so stupid. I was, like, actually breathtaking. Because, And then I thought to myself, you know what? Am I being too hard on this artist? No! You know what? Can I tell the difference between Wolverine and Batman's masks? Yeah, okay. Can I tell the difference between, like, Batman and Nighthawk's masks? Because they're meant to be analogous. Yeah, I can. You know what? Yeah, this is just Red Batman. Now, I desperately need, like, a Crimson Batman. Batman, like gay red Batman all the time. I think it's stupid that Hellcat's ex is Mad Dog. Like, why do we have to play on the stupid puns of cats and dogs? It certainly is kind of frustrating and reductive. One of the things that I've never appreciated about the misunderstanding of comics is some of the tropier cliches, some of the maybe campier, sillier elements obscure the power of some of the material within. Because when we're talking about Professor Power, we're talking about a character who lost his son to his own dark machinations and now is on a PTSD psychotic spiral trying to piece his life back together in a meaningful way. And I'm not trying to be over the top about it. I'm not trying to over celebrate it because, you know, I don't think this is a great story. But we really are talking about books that try to deal with serious topics. And it's really interesting that they're so willing to pack these books with this kind of level of juvenile humor and adult psychology, you have to wonder who they thought this book was for. Yeah, that's a good question. Who was the Defenders for? I have to wonder if it was for the folks at Marvel, because as we were doing this episode, I realized just how many of our own episodes this interacts with. It discusses the Champions, which we covered in episodes 3, 8, 12, and 16, among others. The events that relate to the Beast, we covered in episodes 6 and 13. The Angel Material were covered in episodes 31, 78, and 80, and the Professor Power Material was covered in episodes 34 and 74. That means some of these stories are referencing things that happened a decade earlier. We've been covering hundreds of issues, and the same ideas are still coming up in this very self-referential way. It's really interesting that these ideas are coming back up, but I can't help but notice they're not coming up today, while a lot of the X-Men stories are. Like you both just said, asking who this book was for, I think it was Marvel's way of trying to take certain characters from every aspect of their realm, especially X-Men, and kind of characters here or there from Avengers, and see if they could make another book have popularity with a mixture of them, but I feel like it never really hit the mark. That's why I feel like the book was always a team that was never a permanent roster. I feel like there's a part of Marvel that may have been writing it not to be that way, but then when they realized that certain characters brought more popularity, they made it be that way. I think as the 
X-Men grew, there was just one way to sell books, and that was mutants. Do you also think it was a way to just have these characters appear in books and not backlogged in the archive somewhere? Even if these weren't the best stories, and I think we can all agree these characters deserve a little more love than what they got in these issues, do you think at the time Marvel was like, visibility is visibility? As long as they're being seen and someone is buying these issues, these characters are out there so no one can say you're not appearing? Yeah, I think it's the toyetic potential. I think it's the opportunity to know that this product can be sold. If Angel isn't appearing, if Iceman isn't appearing, if Beast isn't appearing, and somehow one of these many pokers in the fire that they had going, whether it was trying to make animated series or trying to make toys, they wouldn't be able to sell Beast, Angel, Iceman if they weren't able to connect it to a product. If they can't point back and go, look, see, we're making it. It's right here. And I have to assume there was just a keep mutants every fucking place. Man, I can't get over that cover to 129. The Defenders versus the New Mutants. That was a really clever fake out, and I think that was a really cool element to the story. Them being in pretty cool cubes and three days of torture, trying to get them to break down their psyche to fight the New Mutants. I also kind of am sad that Kyle's not here right now. Not that I want to torture him with this book any further, but there was something really similar to the end of every arc of the Champions. Every arc of the Champions ended with them saying, and finally, all of the Champions get along, except one of them doesn't smile. And that's exactly how this ended. Like, every time, things are up, except for the one thing (laughs) that's down. And it's really interesting to see that from, like, 1975 to 1983, we're still telling the exact same kind of story with the exact same characters. And it's so weird that the Marvel fanfare that we covered in episode 31 with this recording intended to run as episode 88, right? That that level of, wow, they are really kind of fudging the timeline here. With the Wolverine material, we discussed how the Wolverine series was released in 1982, but it properly goes in 1983, canon-wise. That Marvel fanfare material was collected awfully early, and like, there's no other way to put it, but hear me out. The Marvel fanfare material was collected in the Uncanny X-Men omnibus just after Uncanny X-Men number 150. However, Angel references having had his basement sub-dungeon torture porn session with Callisto, which is in 169-170. This book, however, says to look to future issues of Marvel fanfare for Angel's adventure in the Savage Land, which already happened. Feels like we're in a, a rabbit hole in a conspiracy theory, but it's really boring. <laughs> I am not pitching any straw mutant theories. What I'm trying to say is, to some extent, there is an inherent difficulty organizing the canon from this time. Where exactly do you put what, and who do you organize it by? You do the best you can, but at some point, you really do come up against a wall where certain characters need to be everywhere at once. There's just occasionally when I'm trying to figure out where Wolverine goes in later material, I just kind of hand wave it. I'm just like, fuck, we're just going to do like a solid six months of Wolverine one-shots. I don't care anymore. Because it just gets so difficult to kind of pinpoint these characters. I can't believe the character we are struggling to identify the incredibly busy timeline of 
is Warren Worthington the third that angel oh, but is it really that hard to believe because he's been thrown around every which way under the sun that it really felt like Marvel loved Angel so much that they were like he can't do nothing so they put him in every title that they could think of it ultimately backfired now that you're looking at it and you're compiling everything that it is just hard to really keep track of how many different adventures Angel of all people went on I'm really shocked to be thinking about it this way because the more attention I'm bringing to it, the more genuinely baffled I am. Angel has pretty consistently appeared, whether it was in the pages of the Champions, immediately after leaving the giant size X-Men, after which he had a good year on the X-Men, toward the tail end of Burns' tenure, and shortly thereafter, he bounced around to the Marvel Fanfare title, he spent some time in Marvel 2-in-1 with The Thing, he was in an Incredible Hulk annual, he appeared in Ghost Rider before showing back up in Dazzler for nine issues out of a year of publishing. From there, he found himself back in the pages of Uncanny X-Men to get his own book again here in Defenders. It's really baffling, but I guess Angel fared really well. Better than Iceman, who while had a number of those things in common, didn't do that year with Dazzler. So, though I guess Iceman does get that upcoming four-issue miniseries, but yeah, I guess until this, I never realized that Angel had such a consistent publishing history. Dylan, if I had said to you that Angel had seen more publishing than Gene or Iceman up through now, would that have clicked with you? It would not. I know before I joined this show, you guys have a little bit of hate for Warren, <laughs> but I didn't realize how popular I guess he was back in that time. I think it kind of goes along the lines, unfortunately, of Marvel probably wanting the pretty boy, rich boy, angelic man who's actually an angel to try to sell books, but it was not working. I really can't believe it, but having been someone who grew up feeling that, I know I'm in the minority on this, but I think Archangel is, for the most part, grim, dark, kind of silly. I never find him scary. I don't know why comic books think giving someone metal and turning them blue makes them scary, but Robo Smurf doesn't freak me out, so I've never been a huge Archangel guy. I just never, ever. But contextualizing Warren's history, seeing where he's at, how many false starts, how many build-ups he's had. I have to really give it up for Wheezy Simonson because what she will ultimately do with Warren, the fulfillment of his pop culture popularity in the form of Archangel, is just, wow, there's really no other course of action from these pages. Once again, we get to see Angel in one of these issues hit on another woman character, but at least this time it's not one who is being written bubbly around him, it's Moondragon, and she instantly shuts that crap down. Meanwhile, Candy shows back <laughs> up. Poor Candy, she keeps showing up even when Angel is making out with Dazzler.
every now and then when we're working on an episode of X's for Podcasts, we come across a character that stands out for whatever reason. In this episode, there was a notable amount of attention paid to Mad Dog, who was revealed to be Patsy Walker, Hellcat's ex-husband. So, of course, I did a little bit of digging in, and I used one of the most respectable, reliable websites to get comic book information out there. CMRO, which is the complete Marvel reading order, produced by Travis Starnes, and the thing is incredible. I could not rely on this thing more to do this show, and I just want to give a shout-out to that. Now, when I took a look at Mad Dog's information, Mad Dog only appeared in 36 issues total, and I thought that seemed a little underwhelming. His most notable appearances did appear to be, well, this story. So when I took a look on Wikipedia and did a little bit more research, it turns out that Robert Buzz Baxter, Mad Dog, from this story, originally appeared in Miss America Comics number 2 in 1944. He was Patsy Walker's boyfriend and actually stuck with her until 1965 when her story saw its initial conclusion. When Patsy re-debuted in Amazing Adventures, which, funny enough, something we covered, he came back just pretty casually. So it was really interesting to find out that he disappeared for a significant amount of time before returning in the pages of Defenders as, well, this ridiculous villain. Now, I thought it was a little bit interesting that this character only had 36 noted appearances on the comic book reading order, so I did a little bit more research. It seemed to me odd that this character would show up here, and, well, by goodness, thanks to the incredible speed that stories used to be published and the fact that he was published for over two decades, Mad Dog has over 1,200 appearances between the early romance years at Marvel and the main continuity. It is so interesting that this character is just hiding in this material. It's also fascinating to me that Hellcat has Damien Hellstrom, so the hell half of her name, and Mad Dog, the other half of her name, as love interests, and that's a whole lot of silly fun. But it's also important to note that Mad Dog is an unusual character because we have seen him handle so many different elements of so many different stories. It wasn't until doing some research that I came to find out that this is the same guy who tried to do research into what the Beast was up to in our sixth episode of X's for Podcast. It's really shocking to me how many of these stories seem to cycle back around. These writers were pumping at a well that, for better or for worse, seemed to give an endless supply of reusable characters and reusable stories. I wonder how much of that reusability was based, in fact, on that nobody could question it. There was no way to get reprints. If you were a big Robert Baxter fan, unless you had the ability to get yourself Miss America number two, you couldn't cross-reference this or that. It's a really fascinating situation where the characters are put to the test as names more than anything. I don't know that it would be possible to trace this Robert Buzz Baxter all the way back to 1944 and then follow him up through now when he continues to appear as Mad Dog. I don't know. I just think it's really fascinating. It's really worth taking a look at that a character like this has walked the line of Marvel Comics, Timely Comics, and everything in between, and it would have been silly to walk away from this episode without at least acknowledging that this is in fact one of the oldest characters we've ever talked about on this show. I have 
so thoroughly enjoyed the journey of coming to find how X Factor makes sense. I never understood why my friends at the time who grew up with it were like, oh, this book's great. Like, I have so many friends that are like, oh, no, X Factor was good. And as a kid, when I was reading it, I just thought it was so melodramatic and so back and forth. But, you know, it's, I guess, in retrospect, an exemplary examination of where these characters wound up and how they became so damaged. I can't believe that Angel really consistently appeared this entire time. And Beast, not the Beast we know and love by any stretch yet. But despite all that garbage, as always, it has been a pleasure discussing these books with you gentlemen. And until we return to take a look at a very special wedding, Dylan, where can everybody find you online? Everybody can find me on Facebook at my Facebook group for all things X-Men. That is called House of X. You can also find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Jonah, where can everyone find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, where can everybody find you? You guys can find me all over this amazing network in the archives on shows like Now and Again or on new shows like this one right here. Don't forget to check both feeds, both 80s Mutant Mania and We Are Krakoa feature these amazing guys where we talk about, well, the X-Men. On Thursdays, We Are Krakoa, we discuss the amazing Dawn of X revitalization of the X-Men franchise under the pen of John Hickman, among others. Also check out HTML, which I did with my husband, Kevin where we talk about movie franchises as well as check us out at our comic book online Kid Riot at KidRiotComics.com where we tell super inclusive superhero stories for a modern audience. As always you can check out everything Krakoa related over at WeAreKrakoa.com where we are setting up our internet presence on all things X-Men. I'm over on Instagram at NicoAction that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N and until next time we'll see you guys. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.